Welcome to the Deep End by On Deck, a podcast for visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. I'm already seeing that. I think just a couple of years ago was the first year when climate migration exceeded its numbers beyond, uh, in terms of displacement, more than um, all the wars in the world combined. So this is a real increasing problem. And in the end, what we want is, I think, uh, hopefully, you know, what everybody wants when it comes to climate change and challenging these issues is to reduce and minimize human suffering, right? That's what it's all about. On Deck is where ambitious people worldwide go to start companies, find their next roles, and invest in their careers. The Deep End invites the founders, operators, and investors from the On Deck community and beyond to turn their experiences into the ideas others need to start their own odysseys. Joining me this week in the Deep End is Lucky Ahmed, founder of Climate X. Today's discussion is about understanding climate change from the standpoint of how it affects us and the world around us for generations to come using data and machine learning. Our conversation covered topics like how climate change can be used to inform risk models for everyone from property holders to businesses to governments. And the variables involved in predicting physical events linked to climate change, from flooding to coastal erosion to rainfall changes. ClimateX's mission is to combat and minimize the human suffering caused by climate change by phenomena such as climate migration, which has exceeded war as a cause of migration last year for the first time ever. It's a great discussion about climate and what comes next in a fresh and new angle you often haven't heard of. Let's dive in. Lucky Ahmed, I was about to say welcome back to the deep end because we've recorded something really recently, but that was a on-deck radar interview where we were putting out just a quick interview around Climate X and your raise. And I really recommend that any listeners who enjoy this conversation get the real expedited version there. But good to speak with you again. Likewise, and uh, it's good to be back. So I appreciate uh, the the invite. Yeah, of course. So the name of the company is Climate X. So obviously the category is in the climate space. The X tells you absolutely nothing about what's actually, actually, let's actually start with the name. What does the X mean? Actually, here's a, uh, a bit of background for you. So I came from the world of banking and finance where things are quite boring. Um, and so the name that nobody knows we almost went with for our solution was Climate Risk Analytics um, Interface or, no, it was Climate Risk AI as in artificial intelligence, because we thought that the acronyms of the CRAI could be something that might sound cool. But then uh, we brought on board our designer friend who's worked at Hasselblad and Marvel and um, DJI, the drone company, and he obliterated our vision <laughs> of what we thought the name should be. And he, he he removed the banking professional kind of edge that we wanted in these words. And actually, the reason why we went with Climate X was um, affiliation more than anything with you know, anything that um, makes you feel that there's a bigger future, there's something revolutionary coming, there's just a new generation. Um, you know, and you see that across various tech companies um, that the X stood bold there. And also from a branding point of view, I think it's really strong. It gives us something that's really memorable that we can create so that, you know, when you just see the X or Climate X, that should give you enough that you need to know 
that this is the company. And, and finally, the other thing that was really important to me from a branding point of view, whatever the company was going to be called, was that we didn't box ourselves into something too specific um, around the, the way that our um, product uh, roadmap might evolve, for example. Um, so right now, we do a lot of uh, work on physical risk data, so looking at how extreme weather events will be affected by climate change. But actually, the vision and the purpose of the company, I think, as we grow, will be to provide climate risk data and analytics of all sorts that will help us to build a more resilient planet. Um, uh, and, and, and that, indeed, uh, is, is an important mission for us. So that's where the name came from. It was in November last year that we, for the first time, grew the logo um, and kind of figured out what we wanted it to look like. And uh, in December 2022, sorry, December 2020, we registered the company. And uh, as the rest of this is, is history. I just love the idea of you spending all this time on the idea and the framing, and then a designer friend will come in and it will get obliterated. I think all of us have a version of that story, but I love what you said around the X conveying something bigger, something greater, something generational. Before we get into the specifics of Climate X, I'd love for you just to talk about what you see as coming next in the space you're building in. Yeah, so so there's been a lot of work that we're trying to do to understand uh, deeply how climate change affects the world around us. So not how we affect climate change, and there are a lot of people doing incredible uh, things in that space, which which is really important. But how does climate change affect us, and uh, not just today, but for generations to come? And uh, when you think about it, it's not something that's constrained by any geography any type of person, any industry, any building type or architectural um, structure. If you've got a little bit of um, pipe somewhere or a parking lot or you have a house or you have uh, some of the things that we're looking into, for example, Arctic ice melting, well, what does that mean for things like the way that we transport goods around the world, so shipping and logistics? But then beyond that, when I speak to somebody else about that same problem, their mind goes to national security and defense, right? So what does it mean when ships can barrage through places where they could never uh, access before. And so when I look at the future of uh, the data and analytics, it really is literally, quite literally, an endless horizon after endless horizon of opportunity because climate change affects everything. And now what I've just been focusing on really is around things that affect us as human beings directly and the built environment, for example. This is what we normally default to. But... Climate change is going to and is already affecting uh, nature, right? So nature-based capital, plants, biodiversity. Um, uh, and when you think about that in the context of not just it's just right that we try to preserve ecosystems because it's a good thing to do. Um, our reliance on those ecosystems uh, is quite significant. And we're only now starting to piece together data sets. There's just an, an intense amount of data that we need to filter through to understand how do these things interconnect and play together so that we can then start to influence change in a positive way so that we, we don't have financial implications um, that shut down entire industries, for example, because wine no longer grows in these particular parts of France with the coffee plantations that we've been relying on for the whole of human uh, history um, since the trades began, like they just won't function anymore. And what happens then importantly to those communities? So the biodiversity and nature capital side is really important. And then the third element, which is uh, really close to us uh, as, a, as a company, as founders, and actually it's since before we even raised our first round we were talking about was how can you use data for good, right? So what does this mean in terms of the application of this data to anticipate things like um, climate 
change related migration. So the way that people will change their lives and then potentially move from one place to another. And what does that mean for those communities that are left behind? What does it mean for the communities that will then take those individuals into their places of living right now? You know, there's cultural, political shifts that will happen. And we're already seeing that. I think just a couple of years ago was the first year when climate migration exceeded its numbers beyond, in terms of displacement, more than um, all the wars in the world combined. So this is a real increasing problem. And in the end, what we want is, I think, uh, hopefully, you know, what everybody wants when it comes to climate change and challenging these issues is to reduce and minimize human suffering, right? That's what it's all about. And it's almost existential as a threat um, that, that faces us right now. And uh, anything that we can do to help with data, predictive capabilities, and analytics is, is, is absolutely important to us. And it's dear to our heart. Yeah, so we'll get into a bunch of specifics from what you just described, but I'd love for you just to offer a summary of what the product right now is. So what exactly is the main offering from ClimateX? So what we offer at ClimateX right now is the ability to anticipate and project extreme weather events linked to climate change and different climate change pathways. Uh, so, for example, um, if you've got a portfolio of properties or even one house or one property, it doesn't matter to us, or a location that for some reason you're interested in, you give us the address or the longitude and latitude, and then we'll return to your risk rating between an A to an F, and you'll be able to see how that risk rating changes over time between now and the year 2100, and also what the drivers of that risk rating are in terms of different physical risks. And when we talk about physical risks relating to climate change, we're talking about things like flooding, um, so surface, river, coastal flooding. Uh, we already have bundled in and we're one of the only providers in the world that has this, but climate-conditioned uh, geophysical models, so looking at the displacement of land, so things like substance, landslides, coastal erosion. And uh, in the UK, we've already deployed uh, extreme heat, cold models uh, as well. Uh, what we'll be doing as we expand the models out to the US and other parts of the world, we'll be introducing our wildfire and tropical storm models. So we'll have a 360 view of how different climate risks will evolve over time as far as physical risk is concerned. Um, so that's what we have now. It's all available via API or on an online platform that we have. Um, so it's super simple to use uh, and intuitive. And it's funny, I've never thought about it this way. What does the climate change picture look like from the UK's perspective? It depends on the... As in, as in just for to be clear here, if you're in the US, you'll hear about Florida or Manhattan, or you're um, at a global level here about the Maldives, but I've never thought about climate change and the UK. So in the UK, it's quite uh, interesting because it's almost started to become... Uh, mainstream now in terms of the awareness and the general uh, political, political agenda that's driving forward the need for adoption of climate risk data analytics. And so in the UK, flooding is one of the major risk types that exists here. And just last year, um, there were rainfall uh, was experienced in ways that we've never seen before. And that resulted in flooding across large parts of uh, the UK and in particular London. And when that happened, it's not because of river flooding um, in London, for example, because what we have here is a, a barrier that protects against um, sea level rise and river flooding across large parts of the Thames. And even now they have an overflow that they're building because that's already starting to struggle. But surface flooding is a problem. So it's a different type of flooding that's caused by the fact that actually when there's torrential downpours, um, so a lot of water 
being poured over a small area at the same time, um, then what that means is that this drainage is able to keep up with that uh, with that downpour, and consequently the roads start to flood. And that's where you see um, the scenes that you're seeing, uh, similar to what you saw, I guess, in places like New York after the storms, but um, slightly smaller scale, but still substantial enough that it causes significant disruption um, and, and it affects businesses and the way that people can go about their daily business and, and their lives. And those types of rainfall events, for example, are going to only continue to uh, get worse over time. So we know that the rainfall patterns from the climate models are saying that rainfall is a problem is going to increase in very much uh, across much of the UK. Um, but that's generally the case in the winter seasons, right? As you move into spring and summer, what we're going to find is that the temperatures get hotter earlier and for longer. And so on average today in the UK, what we know from the climate models it, and, and sort of past experience is that it might be around six days a year that say above 30 degrees centigrade, um, that is likely to increase to 30, 40 days, depending on where you are in different parts of the UK and particularly in the Southeast. So it's a big change and transformation in terms of the weather conditions that we used to and the climate that we generally live in. And actually, funnily enough, where there's um, losses, somebody somewhere wins in some area. And in the UK, if you look down south, large parts of the UK are being purchased now, the land is being purchased for production of um, wine so um, and, and sparkling uh, wine or English champagne, if you're allowed to call it that. And so people are already investing in land because the climate's going to allow grapes to do better in the UK. Um, another risk that is really um, and has not been fully understood and is definitely downplayed but will exacerbate and get materially worse over time is a chronic risk, something that takes more time to materialise, which is subsidence. Um, so this relates to the sinking and swelling of the ground. So what happens there is that actually this is happening all over the world, everywhere, all the time, just at levels that you won't feel on a day-to-day basis. That said, there are parts of the world like um, Jakarta, I think, where it's literally the whole thing just sinking. London is built on something called the London clay. And so it is particularly vulnerable. And London and many parts of London are particularly vulnerable because in the winter, as you get more uh, rainfall, um, this clay will expand. And in the summers, when things heat up, they contract, you see a contraction. And so as this continues to exacerbate, it was the extremes, uh, the extremes on either side to get wider um, and, and further apart, then it can literally create cracks in foundations and destroy entire buildings. And so this is one of those risks that we'll actually be putting out a paper in a couple of months' time um, on some of our findings from the work that we've done which will hopefully pay more attention to the, the challenges that they can bring. Um, so these are significant um, risks that exist across the UK. And by the way, I should stress that climate change is only one of those things in the future if you haven't experienced it yet, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening. So there are already parts in the, of the UK where people are suffering from the consequences of um, significant flood events on an annual basis. And why does it matter to us? There is a part of it which is around business and disruption and value of assets being lost. But actually, people are living in those properties, right? So these homes that they're living in, these are houses where real people live and reside. And there is a mental trauma and stress that exists. When you wake up in the morning and you find that there's one foot of water, you know, destroying everything in your living room or your basement or whatever it is. And yes, the building's okay and it's going to survive but you have to deal with that, right? And so just the fact that you have to um, manage that situation is a stress, 
but then that increases your insurance premiums when it comes to things like flooding. And in New York in particular, that was a big challenge for people where the floods then resulted in uh, new types of insurances so people that were on the borderline and really vulnerable economically suddenly found that they couldn't afford to insure the properties anymore um, because it just got too costly. And then that means if you can't insure your property, you end up with stranded assets and communities and, and that's where there's a big economic hit. And so in the UK, the government's doing a lot of work now to force um, key contributors to the economy to start assessing climate change. And so we literally had the confirmation uh, just a couple of months ago that from tomorrow, from the from um, April 6, 2022, the financial reporting year, any large enlisted company um, that falls under its cash flow will have to then start disclosing climate risks for the first time. So the government is taking it seriously. Yeah. And we're talking about rainfall, but I'd love for you to talk more about just the data points and just the inputs that you are analyzing with your models. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so the easiest way to think about what we're doing, and I will grossly simplify this um, because, uh, number one, I'm not as smart as my climate scientists that work on these things, but uh, it, 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 it will hopefully help paint the picture in a way that makes sense to everyone. So the first thing that we do just to explain a bit of the process is to some extent counterintuitive. We, we, we push climate change to one side and out of the picture to start with. Our first point of interest is to attempt, and this is what we have done actually, but is to attempt to recreate the entire country or area of interest. So the whole of the UK in a digital twin. So imagine it's like the Sims. So block by block, street by street, building by building, looking at you know what the buildings are made of, what the roads are made of, what the terrain's covered in, in terms of vegetation, land use, um, elevation. We, we're recreating the entirety of the country in a digital twin. So this is for our flood models in particular. And once we've done that, um, uh, the question is, well, how do we go about doing that? There's a lot of useful information that's been captured by satellite constellations up in space. And you'd be surprised at just how much information is being gathered around the world where people live and where there's commercial interest by the satellites and the resolutions that they get into. In fact, there are some companies now with satellite imagery that come down to, you know, 10 centimeter resolutions. So that means that they can see from space that you're holding an iPhone and potentially even decipher what some of that looks like. Um, and this is commercial grade uh, data that's available. So we take all of this data, all of this information, in order to allow us to recreate this digital twin. And the way to think about it is if you have an iPhone or an Android today and you point that picture, your camera, sorry, at you know, a dog, the phone will recognize that it's looking at a dog, right? It can kind of recognize what it's looking at with some machine learning and AI. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to images from space. We can kind of tell what the weather conditions are from an image, right? It was dry, it was sunny or whatever else. But the problem that we hit then is, well, actually, if there's a cloud, because it's raining, I can't see through that cloud because it's obstructing the, the view of the image. Um, so how do I know what's happened? Did it actually rain? And if it did rain, what did that look like? Well, that's where you use a different type of instrument. So there's something called synthetic aperture radar, which is literally radio waves being beamed out in space, bounces back up again, and it captures loads of useful information. And so that will tell us things like the elevation of the land. It'll tell us whether or not the, you know, the conditions of the ground itself. And there are all sorts of use cases. So imagine we take all of this type of data in order to recreate the, the whole of the UK. Once I've mapped that out in this digital environment, what I can then do is switch on effectively the laws of physics in that box and 
simulate different weather conditions and patterns to see how that will interact with the real world, that environment that I've created. And so it's the equivalent of saying, look, I've got a glass in front of me. I know what its capacity is. So if I just pour water into that glass, well, how much water is it going to take to fill up? I can solve for that because I know what the glass is made of. I know that it doesn't have any holes for the water to leak out of. So I've got the answers. And then if I keep on pouring water, then I can see, well, this is the point at which the discharge is going to occur where the glass will overflow or the water will will leave the water and then it's going to pour down the side of the glass that's made out of, um, you know, could be made out of whatever materials onto a wooden table. Well, that means the water is going to spread and it's going to run across the surface versus if it was sand, it would probably just be absorbed, right? So I can tell these things and compute these types of outcomes based on those simulations that we run. So then we run multiple simulations. So then I've got a really good view of under different conditions, different weather conditions, interacting with this environment. This is what those answers would look like. So effectively, what is the breaking point? How much water do I need to pour above London or the, you know, parts of the US or wherever before it starts creating a flood event? And if it does flood, how is that flood event going to occur? Now, this stuff is really quite precise. So we, when we, when we run these models, because it's just literally, you know, this is the way that the world works. This is the laws of physics in action. There's not much disputing what the um, accuracy of that is necessarily. It's just tethered to the reproduction quality of the environment that we created. The bit that we don't know and the place where we have a real challenge is in 60 years time above this particular area, how much water will there actually be falling um, from the sky into the ground, right? I don't know what the rainfall will look like because I've got no ability to travel forward in time to see what the answer to the question is. So this is where we move into the world of projections and anticipating things in the future based on assumptions. Those assumptions around rainfall, they come in from our um, climate models that we utilize from places like the IPCC. So they produce emissions pathways that tell us that under certain conditions, this uh, is the emission pathway we're following, like a high emission pathway where we just continue as we are today, or maybe a low emission pathway where we assume that there's a lot of technological advances, policies that mean we stop polluting the, the uh, atmosphere around us and we just change the way that we live. So those are going to give us very different outcomes in terms of how that then interacts with um, atmospheric conditions, sea level rise, temperature changes, and so on. But precipitation, for example. And so if I take those um, pathways and the assumed rainfall patterns of precipitation and I implement that onto our models, it basically gives me the answer of, well, if this is the pathway we're going to be, um, or the trajectory that we're on, then based on that trajectory and based on that amount of rainfall over this area, this is what the outcome is likely to be because we've modeled that already. So it becomes really easy for us to be nimble when it comes to different types of um, emissions pathways that we connect to our models. So that's what we use in terms of the general sort of modeling process on the flooding side. Works really well. We validated our models and they're performing really good. So when we say something's going to happen, more often than not, it's going to be the case that it will. And um, as long as those um, assumptions are, come true. On the other models, when we look at geophysical models and we look at um, substance landslides, there's different types of instruments that we use to measure displacement instead. So, you know, how far has this point on the ground moved from a satellite that's stationary in space? If it moves further away, that means it's been sinking. If it's closer, then there's probably swelling. And so there, what we're trying to really do is to mirror um, that displacement or calculate that displacement accurately. And so our measure becomes um, tied to that, you know, of every 10 millimeters of displacement, 
how much of that are we capturing? And when it comes to proving the models, because that's another part of data we need is to assess the performance. So it's all great for me to say that this stuff's going to happen. Well, actually what we do then, that's the point where we will wind the clock back with our models and say, let's just not tell them anything about what actually happened. But 50 years ago, that's my starting point. I've got the actual rainfall conditions that were observed um, above the UK, for example, and are the inputs that I need. So assuming that that happens, let me let my model reproduce um, the floods across the UK, for example. And so that data is taken from environmental agencies in the UK, we're great at capturing this type of data as in the US and parts of Europe. And then we can compare our model performance and you know what percentage or how many of the flooding events that occurred and were captured did our model successfully reproduce. The problem that you have with that is I could technically flood the whole of the UK, every single corner of it, and then I have technically reproduced 100% of the floods that did occur, right? And so what we need to do is offset that by saying, actually, how many false alarms did we have? So where have we over-predicted floods in areas that it didn't actually get reported and didn't happen? And we use those two things combined to give us an overall critical success indicator that tells us that, yes, our models are generally performing um, to a degree that we think that... It, our customers can rely on um, as we face this world of uncertainty. So it's a combination of data, global um, data sets that help us scale our models internationally, which is really important to us. But then we also have local data sets as well that will be used for supplementary reasons. And if we've got no data at all, then we do the best that we can and we might then use machine learning and uh, various other things to, to try and fill those gaps or assumptions that we otherwise uh, agree with um, with our customers, for example, what are these buildings made of in this particular part of the world, where I don't really know if they're made of brick or if they're made of wood or something else. Let's make an assumption. Something I'm curious about here is you pointed out that there are climate tech startups that are focused on how humans affect the climate. So this would be everything from you know, the clean tech focus to carbon capture, all those bits. Your company is obviously focused on how climate, as you said, affects us. When you're looking at these models, how do you think about the side of the business that's focused around reducing the impacts of climate change? So like, once again, like when you're going 80 years out, to what degree are you factoring in, hey, maybe this thing happens, everything that thing happens, maybe this prediction didn't happen. How do you think about that side of things? Yeah, so so, so that's an interesting one because we, we first and foremost, is we don't need to worry about those assumptions because the IPCC models, what they're really doing is they're saying, look, this is how much, um, based on the human, so based on the human activity, these are the levels of emissions that we're expecting, right? And so, what causes those emissions to move in the directions of the trajectories that they move in um, really doesn't matter to us what causes it. It's just an assumption, assumed output of the work that we do and the way that we live. And so there are already a multitude of scenarios that exist in uh, that the, the regulators are using or that financial institutions or businesses are using now to start um, uh, taking a view of what's plausible. And some of these already take into account um, investment in technologies that might ultimately change the trajectory of how we get to net zero. So I'll give an example. So there's something called the Network for Greening the Financial System or the NGFS. And that's a consortium of 108 central banks. So think of them as you know, financial regulators working together, including the Fed, including the PRA in the UK and 
Hong Kong MA um, and Maz and other people. So they're working together to develop policies and scenarios that can be used to stress test potential futures for the banking system. The three key scenarios that they're looking at, one is a high emission scenario. So we just don't take any additional policy actions. We just continue doing exactly what we're doing in the way that we're doing it. And that gives us the worst possible outcome in terms of temperature rises and all the rest of it. They call that a hothouse world for obvious reasons. The next one um, that they're interested in is really a splinter of the same scenario, but it's just a phasing question. One is an orderly transition to net zero by 2050. And we know that that's under threat and it's highly unlikely that we're ever going to achieve that. That actually aligns with an RCP pathway um, that, that, that the IPCC has already created, which is uh, 2.6. And what that says is that we somehow invest in the right policies, technologies, there's enough offsetting, removal, whatever's needed to take us to net zero by 2050. By the way, that means that we still make things worse for the next 30 years, but we stop making it even worse than it needs to be at that point. So it's not recovered, it's just not a great place to be in. That's one orderly scenario. Now the other one is a disorderly transition, which says for the next 10 years until 2030, we do nothing. And then government starts to kick in action and investment and taking all the necessary steps because they start to get signs and signals of things are going really badly here and we can't ignore this anymore. And so they finally kick in and kick into gear. And by some miracle, within the next 20 years, they get themselves back to net zero. And so this is the three sets of trajectories that you have. Now, one of the things that I think about, though, and what is important to recognize is these models don't take into account what we don't know because you can't, right? It's foolish to do that. And what we don't know, but what I'm seeing signs of, and I'm, I guess one of the things that I'm really fortunate as being a founder in this space, is I get to meet all these incredible people that are working on things that will transform the world around us in ways maybe that we can't even imagine. And I'll give you an example, so food systems. So if you think about biosynth and the way that you know we consume uh, food today and, and how it's man produced and manufactured, so meat, as an example, um, a lot of people around the world eat meat and we know that we need to change that and that's changing, but very slowly. So imagine instead of having to rear an entire cow for a piece of steak, which is expensive, um, it's really damaging to the environment. Um, and also it will become costly over time and more costly than uh, a lab grown or synthesized meat, right? So you basically are building the bit of the meat that you need or the animal that you need round up so it's not sentient it's never lived it's just using tissues and culturing it and doing some various things but you end up anyway with this piece of meat now that when it achieves velocity of scale will result in the cost dropping so rapidly it also means that we have distributed growth available of manufacturing so i don't need a farm for cows to roam i can literally create these things in volumes that you know we've never experienced before um, at low cost that means that it becomes accessible for people to substitute and replace what they have today. And the key thing here is that the alternative, even if people have a cow, it's already happening actually. Right now, and this sounds quite you know gruesome, but the reality of it is that every single part of a cow, for example, is utilized and sold. So if you think about the hide, it's used for leather, it's used for various other things, like belts and shoes and whatever else. Well, guess what? That's already being substituted away. So if I don't need to now and can't, as the farmer, sell that part of the cow, 
then I need to make more money from whatever uh, whatever is left, right? So that might eventually it's going to be just the meat that you're using for human consumption because there's no other reason to have a cow. Um, and so this is where it becomes really interesting, where the cost of just having a cow that sits on a farm just purely for me and for consumption of its milk or whatever is just going to become really expensive because the costs aren't being offset elsewhere or subsidized by other things that you're doing with it. So it just practically becomes more expensive. Now, if you imagine this scaling out globally across multiple jurisdictions and every part of our food system is being re-engineered, the impacts that that's going to have in terms of the the trajectories that we're on when it comes to um, carbon emissions and methane and various other things is huge. But these are not built into the models today as part of the transformation that the globe, the global economy is seeing. And I think that's where you start to see the magic and the potential and hope uh, of, of the future, because this work means that there are technologies and things that we haven't even imagined, that we haven't even started to touch into yet, that will forever change the way that we live our lives. And I think that hopefully will give us what we need in terms of the additional momentum to hit these objectives of let's let's try and curb the emissions that we have and also try and suck some of this stuff out, right? So there's a lot of cobble removal technology um, that's being engineered in ways that we've never seen before. And that's going to be super interesting as well because it's not going to reverse climate change per se, but it can change the trajectory for the better. And I think that's, it. that's the key. And something I'm curious about, how do you see your product, your data, impacting decision-making when it comes especially to industry. So is this going to be a situation where insurance is going to go up on those, let's say, waterfront properties? Is this going to be a situation where someone says, hmm, maybe I don't even want that property in the first place? I know that's more speculative, but can you speak from the practical all the way to the speculative part? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, actually, there's a phase that this is going to happen in, and it's very structured in terms of um, how this is is going to play out in the real world. So the first step is this data is going to go into the hands of people in the financial system. Um, so let's take it from the, the start, so the banks, right? And so they've already been tasked by the regulators to assess climate risks. What does that mean? It means that if I've got a portfolio of a million properties against which I, I have mortgages outstanding, I'll take those million properties, I'll load it into this system, so Climate X and Spectro or whatever else it might be. And now the system's telling me that, hey, my portfolio has a D rating. So an A is the best and an F is the worst and I'm seeing at a D, that's not great. So what the institutions will do at that point or the portfolio managers, is they'll say, look, What's causing that to happen? So where are these assets that are causing me to get a D rating overall? They might find, for argument's sake, that it's all in London. So maybe 30% of the portfolio in London is an F rating because, you know, the whole of London is going to be underwater in 20 years' time. So I have a decision to make now. I can either ignore it and say, okay, I'm going to live with that and just do nothing. Um, probably not the smartest thing to do, and I don't think investors would allow it. Neither would regulators. And um, so therefore, I need to make some sort of action off the back of it. So my existing portfolio, now I know that they're under threat, I can, number one, try and protect those assets by investing in mitigating strategies. So that means lobbying governments, if it's large areas that will be flooded, well, hey, governments, can you invest in 
flood defenses because what we're seeing is that what we have right now is not going to hold up for long. So you should start these projects now because it will take decades to complete. We need the funding. So let's, let's hey, maybe even finance some of this work because it makes sense to do it. It's a good investment to protect all the disasters of all these communities. Number two is if I want to stay in those areas um, and I want to continue lending in those areas because, you know, maybe I don't believe that it's really going to happen or there's an 80% chance that it won't happen and I, I don't want to just completely withdraw uh, my lending in those areas. What I'll do then is I'll say, okay, I'm going to price differently because I see that the problems really start in 20, 30 years time from now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to increase my interest rates or ask for a higher down payment um, versus what I normally would have done otherwise. Maybe I won't lend for the full 30 years because actually after 10 years, I need to reassess my decision-making processes. And so the way that I lend and where I lend is going to change. And if I stop lending in this area, well, where should I lend to instead? Or where should I build my portfolio instead? And how do I rebalance that portfolio? So maybe I make a target that actually in the next three years, I want to move 10% of my exposures from London into a surrounding area where there's less risk. So these are the level of decisions that the high level will start to affect everyday people. Because when these decisions are being made, you will see that manifest as a change in pricing or changing interest rates or something that's going to appear on your uh, terms and conditions, right, in terms of pricing. So this is really important that it will have an effect. Now, is that the end of it? Not really, because the other challenge that you have from an insurer's point of view, and I'm glad you mentioned this, is when insurers see this data and see the risk, there's a few things that can happen. But principally, the biggest concern is that the insurer's after a certain amount of losses, we'll just withdraw from that market and say, we're not going to lend here anymore because we know that the claims volumes are going to be too high and we can't, we can't possibly price for that. We're out. And it, this is not hypothetical. This has happened. There are many people around the UK, in the US and various other parts of the world, Germany, for example, where this has happened already, where there were places that have never flooded before. And then suddenly it seems that they flooded. It's a one in a thousand year event. But hang on, six years later, it's happened again. And then 12 months later, it's happening again. It's worse on each moment. And in those instances, the insurers are either ratcheting up the pricing, so it becomes more expensive for people to continue to stay in those areas and they can't afford to then insure the properties. They become stranded assets and those communities can become stranded and divested uh, because nobody's going to open an office block or a shopping mall in a place that's going to be prone to flooding or fires, right? Why would you do that? And so this is the risk that you face. Now, what we have is a counterbalance, which is quite um, uh, unique in the UK, and I hope that other parts of the world do this, is a regulator that cares about the conduct of uh, institutions and how that affects societies. We have the FCA here. And what they're doing is saying, okay, banks, you've got your financial you know, things that you need to worry about. That's great, and we understand the reason for that. But we can't do it at the expense of destroying entire communities um, by taking, uh, you know, knee-jerk reactions. The key here is how do we prepare and mitigate and smooth that transition into this new economy that we need to move into? If we don't, the risk is what we saw in 2009, the global financial crisis, repeating itself. And we all know who paid the price for that and who suffered in the end. It's usually the most vulnerable um, folks in society that end up paying the, the, the greatest costs. And this is not one of those things you can just switch on and off um, because you feel like it. And by the way, it's not waiting for us either. You don't have rivers that are just waiting, bulging on the seam and saying, now's the time to flood because they're ready for me to come. So let's let the water pour over. That's not how it works. 
it's going to happen in spite of whether you prepare for it or not. And so what I say to people is, look, the data that we produce, is it going to likely have an impact to the economy and shock some of the systems and pricing and enable some of this change to happen sooner rather than later? Yes, that's true. But it's going to relieve a huge amount of pain. It's going to be a pressure valve that's much needed to to make sure that we transition, we properly price for risk and we properly hold um, capital and provisions for what that damage might look like. We need the shock absorbers for the economy to work. And the only way that that happens is if we have strong and healthy um, balance sheets that can support that and policies in place. So we don't have irresponsible lending. Um, and in due course, we want to make sure that this data can ultimately be seen by everybody, um, you know, whoever you are. The only reason why we're not deploying this data straight into the hands of, you know, property purchasers and mortgage owners today or you and I is it's complex data. There's a lot of uncertainty that exists around it. It's a game of probabilities. And the average person is not trained to understand this data in a way that should be used to make a decision on the property purchase that they want to make. Um, and so it's a really complex thing that we want to make sure that when we do it, it's done responsibly. And a final caveat I should say is, when you because you mentioned Miami, for example, there's a whole point around sentiment as well. In the end, people don't buy properties just because of one reason or another. There's usually a whole range of reasons and not least emotional attachments that result in decisions. So in Miami, for example, people are living through these types of um, you know storms already, um, surges of of uh, the sea that inundate their properties and cause all sorts of damage. And we know that you know much of that coast will disappear um, in floods. Now, does that slow down that market? Not really. People are still buying properties in the coastlines of Miami for millions of dollars. Why? And actually, these are people that can afford to do it. Number one, um, and number two is the sentiment that hasn't shifted their behaviors yet. So there's there's an interesting dynamic at play. One is the dissemination of the data that we produce in itself can change behaviors because you'll say, I know this thing is likely to happen. I'm going to get out of the way. I don't want to be um, participating in taking out a mortgage for $1 million for the next 20 years in a property that might become worth zero in the next 10. I'm still burdened with that, regardless of what happens to that property value. That's my risk. So you just say, no, I'm just going to buy something that's on a higher elevation or further away from the coast because it's safer. The other side of things is um, in places like Miami where you get the data, and it's not just Miami, by the many parts of the world, but you get the data and you don't care. And what needs to happen is that those events need to manifest. They need to affect you. And only after they've affected you to the point where you can't withstand it anymore, that's when you leave and you vacate and say, I'm done. The straw that broke the camel's back wasn't the fact that I knew this was happening, but the fact that it's happening to me. And therefore, now is the point when the migration happens and you get climate gentrification, you get all these other things as people relocate. So, so, so it's it's going to be quite complex, but I think there's a measured way it's going to be integrated into decision making. And by the way, the final point on this is just around corporates at large and just wider players. So think about Amazon. They've got warehouses all around the US, the UK, and the world indeed. So what happens when these warehouses, maybe they're safe, maybe they're on top of a hill somewhere, but actually the roads that lead to the warehouses, they get flooded. So... People can't make it to work. So the productivity slumps. People, um, you know, short of wading through the water, literally. And actually in New York, that happened, um, sadly, where people felt so obliged to go to the offices that they actually literally went through these 
rivers to get then some people suffered as a consequence. Um, the productivity crashes, that affects more than just Amazon, it affects the economy, right? The wider communities and so on. So what does that mean? And how do you prepare and mitigate against those risks? And that's where business disruption analysis comes in and other things. So it's 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 something that affects every corner of the economy, it affects every single person. Regardless of where in the world you are, um, you might think that you're sheltered, but you won't be um, because the way that you transact on things will change, the way that you price assets will change. Your communities will change because people, they don't have water, there's no salination. Who's going to stop them from crossing borders to get to where you are, where there is resources, the, the resource they need to survive. It's just inevitable. So I think people need to start waking up to this. And, and to be fair, the US has done some good work. I think just a couple of weeks ago, they announced um, mandatory climate disclosures for um, listed firms in the US. Um, the SECs started to mobilize. Um, so that's good news. And it's a global movement that I think is much welcome. So for the last question here, we, we spoke about this a bit during our radar interview, but now that it's been a couple of weeks, I'd love to hear what are the next steps for you? So what do what does like the next subsequent post raise period look like for you in Climate X? For us it's it's the next steps for Climate X will absolutely be around building the the most talented and exceptional team that we can possibly have. Um it's 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 a question of what are the areas that we need to really scale out? And number one is on the technology side of things. So we know that we will be processing literally trillions of points of data. We already are. I need to filter that data and get it sent to somebody somewhere in the world quickly and securely, right? And so there's a huge technological challenge that we'll be leaning into and that we've got a lot of work to do um, to make sure that the infrastructure is there to support the volume of data and transactions that we'll be processing over the coming uh, months and years. And separately to that, um, there's a lot of work that we want to and need to do around the dissemination of this data to markets where uh, I would say that they're underserved. Um, people don't necessarily look at, I mean, parts of Africa don't even register in a lot of people's minds because they don't generate the revenues and the investments that you need or ROIs that people would want um, to operate in those spaces. But just think of what type of company or person I would be if we have this data that can literally save or transform millions of lives and we just keep it for those with the biggest uh, wallets and budgets. Um, I would almost find it disturbing that for a second we would think that that's the right thing to do or that we should even think about it. Now, the reason why we, we're working with policymakers in these parts of the world um, that are less developed, that have less access to resources, but sadly will be disproportionately adversely imp impacted by climate change, even though they contributed less to the problems than other nations. So the reason why we haven't gone into those spaces yet and out of the gate is because it's not just about give people data and let them run data. There's a lot of work that needs to be done from a policy point of view so that that data can be implemented and put to use. Otherwise, you induce panic. You you know, I don't want to do virtue signaling. It's not what I'm about. It's about actually let's make things practical, uh, actionable, um, so that when that data hits, the governments are equipped to do something. And to be frank, and I completely understand it, in certain parts of the world, they've got bigger problems to deal with today. How do I feed my population, my nation? How do I make sure they've got basic sanitization, hygiene? How do we make sure that, you know, um, they're not being ravaged by COVID? So as we return to some semblance of normality, 
let's not forget that there are parts of the world where the vaccines still have not been distributed and people are still dying. So, you know, there's a timing element, there's a there's a sentimental element that needs to come in, but it really needs to be working alongside those governments to implement change. And also trade bodies and um, partners like, you know, UNFFIs and World Bank and other folks that, that, that can help us um, fund some of the work that needs to happen in those areas. So that's really a, a critical piece for us is within the DNA of our company is to make sure that we never forget the mission, which is this is not about um, a select margin of society that we want to benefit with this data. It literally is everybody and everything on this planet um, that we want to enable resiliency for, and we want to drive that through um, through through high quality predictive data and analytics. Um, yeah, so, so I think those are the the, 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 the two things that we'll, we'll be giving up on. And then obviously it's just getting our data into the hands of as many people out there that need it. If people are going through the journeys for the first time, we're trying to understand climate change, climate risk, what does it mean for me? What what is climate change? You know, we're we're on hand. So we bring out a lot of content um, to help people navigate the space. Um, so if they sign up for a newsletter or just check back on our website, then no doubt they'll 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 be able to access some of those resources as well. Really useful, really substantive. Yes, I suggest everyone check out those additional resources. Lucky, thank you so much for joining us on the deep end. Absolute pleasure, and thank you once more for having me. It's, it's always great. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.